The talk tonight is about equally valuing the truth of love and the truth of wisdom. When we take birth, when we incarnate, we're born into a world of paradox. So there's a a paradox of um, the experience of of love, the experience of wisdom, the experience of um, wholeness or the feeling of completeness and the feeling of brokenness. There's the um, ordinary and there's the extraordinary. There's the conditioned and the unconditioned, samsara, nibbana, microscopic, precise attention, (laughs) open, wide, receptive attention, joy, sorrow. So this um, world that we're born into is quite um, something to learn to navigate through and balance. There's a quotation from Krishnamurti that I I feel really describes this. He said that to be actually sensitive, not about something, but just to be sensitive, to be vulnerable, like that new spring leaf, which was born a few days ago, to face storms, rain, darkness, and light. That's the meditation path. That's the path of awakening. And we don't always want to hear that it's like being that newborn. And the reason for that is because each moment is alive. If there's life, then life is moving. It's changing. Each moment takes birth and passes away. So that sense that we can um, have no insulation between ourselves and the world, which would mean that we're just like that new spring leaf, which was born just a few days ago to face storms, rain, darkness, light, Is that what you're doing here? Is that why we took birth? When I was teaching that retreat, I described to you um, of the mentees I've been working with for some years, the 19 to 30-year-olds. I was quite busy because it meant that um, it wasn't a retreat center, So six of us went uh, three days early and uh, worked really hard to set up the food for 45 people and the rooms, and um, it was a lot of work. And the retreat was like I was dorm mother, manager, (laughs) teacher. I mean, it was just an incredible amount of work. And I hardly ever got out to this beach, (laughs) which would have been nice, right? And so toward the end of the retreat, I... um, I bike rode down to this beach really early, just just at sunrise. Um, and the ra- it had been quite rainy, and the sun came out uh, for some glorious moments. And I kind of got called down the beach, and I found this dead seal. And I grew up in Massachusetts, and uh, in my lifetime, I've never seen a dead seal. 
So I had mixed feelings because um, they almost went extinct when I was a child. And so to see this dead seal, I knew it meant, you know, they were making a comeback. Uh, you know, so in a general way, I felt happy for all seals. <laughs> but in a very specific, unique way, I really felt for the seal. And um, the seagulls were dive-bombing it, and they were, they were making big holes in it. It was quite disgusting. They were eating, eating its flesh. And f- I think that for us humans, um, we often, when someone passes away, you know, we, we, there's the animal world will often help, help give us a sign. There'll often be a way that the animal world will help us. Kind of like here, you know, there'll be a place where we'll see a deer and you know how much that helps us. Or we'll see maybe a hummingbird. or We'll just make that connection out of our separate little isolated world and feel that interconnectedness, that truth of interconnectedness. And it's what what we live for. So the animal world often gives us a lot when someone dies, but we often don't do the same for them. And I have a deep connection to the animal world. It's like they've saved my life when I was a child. So I went to the seal and I just sat there with it. And even though it really smelled, <laughs> you know, I just sat there doing metta. And it was like the spirit of the seal started to come to me, into me. Um, and then all these seals swam into shore. And it was just like so beautiful. They, it was like we were all there wishing this great being well on its journey. So can we do that with each moment? Have this great balance of great care for incarnation, for being, but also know that each moment is passing away. You know, that's a good question. You know, why is it so hard for us to be here? It's because it's hard to have that kind of balance where each moment is actually taking birth and passing away. And also love. It's like, why love when it hurts so much to lose it? You know, haven't you asked yourself that question? Probably many, many times. So having this love that is permeated with wisdom is loving-kindness. And the practice is one of really developing loving-kindness, compassion, and also wisdom. One of my... um, favorite sermons of the Buddha is uh, when he just held up a flower you know, and it was an open flower and it was said there was one person in the audience that understood and smiled and I think that it, it's Spirit Rock if you just hang out by the dining room and just see all the different flower buds and the beauty of the flowers it, it's a reminder for us you know, that the path is one of opening. Awakening is when the attention or awareness opens. If we think of what resistance is, it's when we close. And annihilation, when we feel annihilated, is when we disappear to survive. So that's also a loss of self, but it's horrible. 
enlightenment or awakening feels wonderful. And the little bit of um, <laughs> the minor detail here in terms of why, you know, we look at the open flower and go, yes, you know, we want so much to do that. Um, but if you think of a flower bud, just like with Krishnamurti's um, saying, when we open, we open to darkness and light, rain, wind, storms. And so we tend to, we like the deal of opening, but the deal we want to make is we're going to just open to the good stuff, right? I mean, we don't tend to like this deal. You know, we open, and we open to the range of pleasure and pain. That's it. That's how it goes. We don't just to go, get to go, well, I'm just going to open to this pleasure here and not to the pain. You know, so when we close, we close down to everything. And that's why it hurts to be closed, because we close to the, the joy as well as the sorrow. And when we open, the reason it also can hurt is because we open. We, it feels wonderful, it's joyful, but it also can be sorrowful. We can't pick and choose. When we open, we open to the vast range of joy and sorrow. So what we do, the re- how we do that, what is protection when we feel that vulnerable and open and sensitive? We're replacing the learned defense system of aversion and attachment. Those are how we learn to become an adult, to kind of, you know, pretend, right? We pretend we're okay. You know, we learn to, to do a lot of manipulation so that we don't look like a three-year-old. <laughs> when you come, you know, especially the people who've been here really long, you know how sometimes you'll feel so young, you know. The hammering starts, and it's like, no, not that, you know. And some people in the room might not even hear it. And other people will feel awful. You know, it's like we have this again. You, you start to become more transparent, just like a young child the heart opening will feel like you have more access to the joy of a young child. One of my root gurus is Sri Nazargadatta Maharaj, um, who was a great um, teacher from India who's not alive anymore. Um, And he said, Love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. And between the two, my life flows. And for me, that's been like a compass in my life. It's just like it's been probably the most important teaching. And I really feel like he really gets across that sense of that equally valuing both of those as the path. So love, wisdom... um, Babies die without it. Human babies actually die without enough affection. And we can see how generosity, the kindness of renunciation, loving kindness, compassion, are all what holds us. It's what makes it possible to be alive. We're dependent on each other. We need each other so much. Um, And the... Metta practices you've been finding, it, 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 there's a way in which it heals 
any disconnect. It's any way in which we've lost pieces of ourselves. The loving-kindness practice gives us this possibility of healing a disconnect, healing the resistance. Over and over we learn to bring that mother cow and the baby calf together. And I want to emphasize again that the Buddha used the image of a cow is really important for loving kindness. It's like it's that instinctual, you know, it's like if you do relate to that image, it's like it's cozy. You know, it's like there's a coziness to beings coming together in that way, just just the warmth of being together um, with, with kindness. So the ability, again, to kind of get the newborn quality to this purity of heart, you know, that we, re- we can actually learn to relate to ourselves like a newborn. With that just, we know that life is full of joy and sorrow. We know it's full of paradox. But can we just have that purity of wishing well without controlling the result of our wish? We know we can't control the result of it. And I found as I've done this practice that my understanding of what I'm wishing keeps changing and deepening. And it's so wonderful. It's like the the wisdom practice. The more you understand what you're doing with the wisdom practice, the more you'll understand what you're wishing for people. Because if you're wishing people to be happy and peaceful, and the more you understand how to be happy and peaceful, the more that's what you're going to be wishing people. And it's to understand that it's natural for the human heart to aspire to be free. It's universal. When we get quiet, we do want to be free, no matter what. There's a, um, a cave. There's several caves, lots of caves, actually, in the Sagain Hills in Upper Burma, where I've been teaching for some years. Uh, and one cave... Actually, I'll tell you about both cave, caves. One cave, if you can just imagine this... Um, the last person who lived in that cave, his aspiration was to be the next Buddha's attendant. I mean, that's humble. I mean, do you know how long from now that is? You know, just, 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 just to kind of even imagine, that's a long time from now. And this being is like that, you know, when we talk about, like, social service and social work, you know, do we always think about, you know zillions of lifetimes from now perfecting ourselves to be the servant we're usually thinking about perfecting ourselves to be the Buddha yeah? not the attendant you know. and so it, when you walk into this cave there's just this sweetness and you see that he practiced this man practiced taking care of the Buddha his whole life and it, it's so sweet it's a knockout it's that purity of love in, there, in that, in that place that just it just doesn't disappear when this man died and this other cave nearby same area there was a man who was really dedicated and it said to be he became fully enlightened and when I go in that cave I just start sobbing I sit down and it's just like the depth of this aspiration to be free that I know I've had for lifetimes comes into my heart and I just start sobbing and I really awaken to that place that's in all of us you know it's so pure in all of us you wouldn't be sitting here 
right now if you didn't have that. Something brings us here even though we don't know what, but it's usually a homing instinct. We're homesick. So please don't kind of have a sense that the met is this sort of little, you know, yucky thing that, or this little kind of minor thing and the wisdom is this big thing. The loving kindness and the wisdom as we go along and practice become interpenetrable and they become equally important. So love tells me I'm everything. We really touch the truth of interconnectedness. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing means that we really deeply understand, as Joseph was talking about last night, that nothing is worth being attached to because it's moving. We can't control it. There are ways in which the loving-kindness practice is so important in our culture. And I mentioned this a bit in a question-and-answer period, but I just wanted to touch on it again. It's like sometimes when we touch into um, that wisdom tells me I'm nothing, often culturally we'll kind of get this fear of the void in a negative way. It's not like we have this sort of, go, oh, oh boy, you know, we're af- afraid that it might be annihilating, and it isn't. Um, but if we have that fear, it's a fear of groundlessness, and the groundlessness that doesn't feel so healthy is when metta hasn't been present in our life, or compassion. And so that's why culturally the metta and compassion are so important, because it allows us to withstand the healthy groundlessness. It's like when it, the healthy groundlessness will feel good, but then when we start getting afraid, then if we bring the metta right in, we'll feel fine. You know, it's like there'll be that sense of it's okay. It's okay. There's something holding us. There's a um, part of my family that lived in California for a few years when my great-niece was born. Her name's Brenna, the one that um, we're so alike. But I didn't meet her until she was four when she moved back to Massachusetts. Um, and uh, one day I was sitting at the kitchen table with her and she was painting, you know, uh, finger painting. And she made just a really beautiful picture. It was just gorgeous, really artistic, very well done, well well considered. And I just said, you know, Brenna, that's just such a good painting. You really, I, I'm not kidding. It's really good. And she she just her whole body received it. You know, it was just like she was just quivering. And her mom was cooking, and and she looked around and she said, I really really love myself. (laughs) 
you know, it was just like so sweet. But listen to, you know, listen to us laugh. Do we walk around saying that? You know, this is a sign of the culture, you know. We just, it's just like so rare that we would be that transparent. And then, like about an hour later, her older brother and her and I went upstairs to play hide-and-seek, and she really does not like sharing the attention with her brother, and she likes to have total control over the rules. And Oh, she's a brat. I mean, she can be just such a brat. You know, and she's so hogging of everything. And, you know, so I, I'm really trying to set the limits and not, you know, give more attention to her. And she just, she just did something. I think she like whapped him with a baseball bat or something. You know, she just kind of took everything out on him. And, and then I, you know, I said, it's not okay. And she went running, dive bombing into her room, slammed the door, you know, was in the bed with the covers over, sobbing. This is an hour later, right? And I, I, I opened <laughs> the door, went in, and she said, I hate myself. I hate myself more than you'll ever, ever know. <laughs> <laughs> You know that rain? (laughs) You probably felt it today, you know. And the wisdom practice is meant to help us see over and over again how we make an interpretation about ourselves in relationship to our experience. And this is hard for us to see. To understand peace or nonviolence is to understand that whenever we are identified with experience as being me or I, that we're going to suffer. And that sense that, oh, 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 you know that, oh, I'm concentrated, finally. You know, you're sitting there a few minutes, you know, oh, you know, or oh, equanimity, finally, you know. And then it's like, I'm a good yogi. You know, I could be the best yogi here. You know, that, <laughs> you know, I'm probably better than anybody else. You know, that's how we can be, you know. And then maybe half an hour later, you know, we're just like whipping ourselves with self-hatred because it passed. All because we think that we are our experience. And it's hard for us to get that we don't have to identify with the good times, the joy, or the sorrow. And that, that, that that's, even though it can feel unfamiliar or kind of losing our identity, that as you shift into this awareness that's deeper than life and death, this awareness that's free of experience, that's free of duality itself. It's like we start to taste. It's like, it's like you're cultivating a taste for liberation. <clears throat> and it takes cultivation. When I was in Burma this year, just to give you a sense of one day of a range of joy and sorrow, um, we went up um, to this little mountain to look at this uh, little cottage kuti that um, Steve Smith had had built. He hadn't seen it because the government yet again took his visa away. He probably won't get a visa until um, the government changes. So I went up to take some pictures and we had to go through this beautiful ancient fishing village and it was just beautiful. And this little boy without even, you know how a little child can be, but behind me he was walking behind us, playing and singing. Just that, just joyful singing. He didn't think anybody was hearing him. And it was so pure and so touching. And then when I got back to um, 
my kuti, I had brought chocolate, a lot of chocolate, to give to Sayada Ulakana, and I've never had to, you know, wrap it a lot and hide it from a rat, you know. And I had my this chocolate in my suitcase, and I have a suitcase with really good zippers, you know, this huge zipper, because I travel a lot, very strong. And I got back, and a rat had eaten, like, a lot of my suitcase. Like, you know, it ate the zipper. Like, it ate... (laughs) You know, how did they do that? You know, what are their teeth made of? You know, but it was amazing. Like, this, just, you know... And, you know, you can't get luggage in, you know, man, you know, in rural Burma. Like, it was not just my luggage, the chocolate for Sayadaw, the chocolate for me. (laughs) It was mixed. (laughs) But it was also, you know, the real issue was, where am I going to get a suitcase? You know, but then, you know, that's minor, but then I I got bronchitis, and it's hard to be sick in Burma. That day was just sort of, again, that mix of joy and sorrow. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing meaning that nothing is worth being attached to. And can we ride this range of joy and sorrow? The um, happy Sayadaw I told you about that I met this year who um, was talking about the four foundations of mindfulness being like an orchard. Um, At the end of the retreat, the manager of the retreat um, usually gives a talk on generosity. That's like a, a kind of tradition in the West. And in, the, in Asia, usually generosity is talked about at the beginning. You know, they, they go generosity, renunciation, wisdom. We usually go wisdom, renunciation, <laughs> generosity in our culture. It's, it's funny um, what works for us. Um, so this manager wanted to go see the happy Saito and ask him about generosity, Donna, just kind of. Uh, because he was so much fun, he was interested in hearing what he would say. But we're all used to really quiet sayadows, like that don't kind of move their arms and jump around, and you know. And so we were all sitting there, like you are now, you know, kind of, you know, not moving, our eyes kind of shut, sitting there. And then he, you know, he, there was an appropriate moment where he asked our you know, young Jake, the young man I talked with you about who translate, who came last night. He came to sit here to listen to Joseph's talk. And um, so Usumana Jake translated, you know, what what would you like to tell us about generosity or Donna? And he just started having this huge laughing fit. I mean, it was hilarious to him. (laughs) He's like, you want to know about Donna? I'll tell you about Donna. And he got up and he went over to his altar and he took this whole pile of oranges. I mean, he could barely hold them all. And he threw them at Greg. You know, he's like, that's Donna. That's her. (laughs) And we were just, just amazed. You know, we've just never seen it before. You know, and then... We were just sitting there, and he said, ha, 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 you want to know about Donna? And he went up to the altar, grabbed a whole bunch of bananas, and he just threw them at us. <laughs> That's Donna. And we were like, whoa. <laughs> and it's 
so it's just it's so obvious to him that everything everything is interconnected everything's dana you know and so he says ha ha and then he really got into it right he's like look at the ceiling ha 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 that ceiling is generosity and then he really got into it he's like look at your body it's that's dana you know and that that was the most funny to him at all of all that we can't get that this body is is dana is generosity is precious to cherish it because it's our vehicle for liberation. You know, and then he can be that fun and just so spontaneous and alive and then it just gets really quiet again, like that real profundity of what he's saying, the obviousness of it, the importance of it, the whole, the whole way it, it, it glues our culture together, how important it is. It's the foundation of our life, of our spiritual practice. So our breath, our sadness, our contentment, everything is generosity. And when we can receive it, there's gratitude, joy. And we learn to receive the pleasure and the pain, the joy and the sorrow, as a vehicle for developing compassion, love, wisdom, and to feel that joyful. Renunciation, you know, there's the generosity as, again, a form of kindness, love. Um, And then renunciation, culturally we can tend to think, uh, you know, but really, if you think of renunciation as a kind of kindness for yourself, as a kind of love and compassion, then it can be inspiring. It's like, it's really living simply. For example, you know when you ask somebody how they are in our culture, what's the answer usually? Busy. Busy? Is that familiar? Busy. Driven. And then when it's really strong, overwhelmed, you know, we just busy, 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 busy. And it's a kind of radical, really radical gesture in life to, to have enough simplicity where you're not overwhelmed. You know, that's part of learning the practice is really looking at our life and seeing, you know, what are we doing? Not just on the retreat, but really to see, do we really want to live like that? And is that the conditions for peace and love and harmony? When the Buddha, before he was a Buddha, um, did the many years of ascetic practices. You know, he, was, he was basically al- almost starved to death. And there was a point where you know, he was so starved and so um, depleted. And this was right before um, his full enlightenment. And that day, uh, he was sitting there, and this um, young woman named Sujata was asked by her parents to bring some rice gruel to the offering, that you know, the altar, the ancestral altar. And it said that she was carrying this rice gruel to bring to the altar, and she saw the Buddha-to-be and had such compassion for his suffering and hunger that she offered the rice gruel to him rather than to the altar. And this is the basis for his full enlightenment, his receiving enough food to sustain him 
which is really the Mother Earth, right? You know, receiving the, the love and her compassion was really the foundation for his full enlightenment. So when we eat here, you know, it's like to receive the generosity of the work of the staff and all the people who support us. It's really important to remember that that's what is underneath the possibility for us to awaken. And what I love about going to Burma is that there are people there, just like there's people here, but there, it's often some people, a few people, who really understand this. And when they understand it, it actually helps your practice even more. So there's a cook, for example, where we go at a monastery. I know it's a 1,500-year-old monastery where we practice. And this cook came up to me the first time I was there, and he said, I feel like it's part of my lifetime's work to support Westerners' practice by cooking for them so you don't get you know, sick. And he really reenacts sujata every day. He only gets a couple hours of sleep. He cooks over an open fire. It's really hard. He, he, he works all day, and then he goes and takes a bus to get vegetables for the yogis in Mandalay, a really long trip, just so that the yogis will get some fresh vegetables. He comes back, he cooks till one or two in the morning, gets up at three or four, and he's so happy. And he does this year after year after the year, and I can't tell you, I've never seen him get a little bit grumpy. He just is, he's so happy, because he understands what he's doing. So understanding, ha, 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 dana, generosity, your body, all of us being here, the interconnectedness, the food, you know, the shelter, and understanding that our renunciation, our giving up of being busy, of having too much, maybe it's hard for you to have a roommate, but maybe that's good practice. So understanding that relationship between receiving what we're given, whether it's a breath or sadness or food or whatever, is part of being peaceful and joyful and grateful. The Buddha taught that the proximate cause for the arisal of loving-kindness is being aware of one's goodness or the goodness of others. And there's a Joni Mitchell song that I've always found really inspiring in terms of understanding this. I don't know if you've heard it, but you know the line, um, I can't find my goodness because I lost my heart. Because, you know, in this case, it's a lost love. Um, but, But, you know, you can't go through life without losing love sometimes. And so we know that feeling of being brokenhearted, of losing the heart. And, and that's perfect. It's a perfect understanding. When we can't find our goodness, it's because we're experiencing the loss of our heart. So the loving-kindness practice is meant to help us, again, find that internal mother cow, baby calf, so that we're not so dependent on outer people to love us to the point where we can't be okay. 
It doesn't mean that we don't yearn for love or that we don't want and need connection. That's, that's human. But are we so dependent on it that we can't be peaceful and love ourselves? I had heard that um, the cook had wanted this piece of equipment uh, for his violin. Um, I, I, I'm so, um, I don't know enough about amping music to know what it was, but um, I had brought him a violin maybe five years ago because he loves to play the violin and he didn't have a good one. Um, so I was supposed to bring this thing. <laughs> that I didn't ever understand what it was for. But I wrote it down, like I got an email from the manager of the retreat. I wrote it down, and I was busy before I left, and I went to Radio Shack, and I got this thing, and it was really supposed to be the best you could get and really good, because I really wanted to honor, you know, give him something back, because it's hard to give him anything back. Um, So I was all excited that I had finally found something again to bring after four years of not thinking of anything. Uh, and then I got there, and I heard it wasn't what he, you know, it wasn't the right thing. It was actually what I got was this karaoke thing, <laughs> like a microphone. <laughs> I'm not good at picking these kind of things out, by the way. <laughs> um, so um, I just was so sad that I just didn't want to give it to him. So the whole time I was there, the month I just kept feeling like, oh, you know, so I finally had the translator one afternoon sort of do this long explanation about how um, it wasn't the right gift. He didn't, it wasn't specific. I want him to open it and see that I got him a karaoke microphone. I didn't want to tell him, but I, I was trying to prepare him that it was really not what I had wanted to give him. And so he had this long description of what, that I had made, you know, I didn't bring the right thing. And he speaks a teeny bit of English. And so he opened up this present, and he looked at it for a long time, and he looked at me, and he said, Michelle, this is a good mistake. (laughs) (laughs) And it was like, oh, it was so perfect. I mean, I was feeling so bad. And, you know, can we do that? ourselves. It's like, oh, that was a good mistake. And in fact, <laughs> do we? You know, but that's a part of, of, of developing wisdom, is really being able to do that. I was just on the big island um, with my friend who almost died, and he's alive. And we cel- once a year we celebrate the anniversary of him almost dying. Um, and he moved to the Hilo side of the Big Island, and I don't know that airport very well. And granted, it's not a big airport, but I had to rent a car and do some things in Hilo. Then they called me. I had to bring the rental car back. And but I just kept getting lost. I mean, it was ridiculous, but, and I was hurry, hurried, and I kept going around and around the Hilo airport getting lost. Um, and after the third time, I thought, I really know this airport now. <laughs> you know. And it was like, how do you get to learn an airport? How do you, I mean, if you go to a, a place that you don't know, how do you do it? Usually you get lost, right? 
and you kind of get mad because the signs aren't right. That I was blaming the signs, you know, for a while, you know. But it was just like it's the same old teaching. It's like, oh yeah, duh. You know, it's like that's how you learn is by taking these detours and doing the wrong thing and then so-called wrong thing. But really, it's how we learn. It's how you learn microscopic attention. It's how you learn about joy. It's how you learn metta. It's how you learn anything is by going this way and going, oh, (laughs) guess not. And in fact, um, this practice is more like um, walking on a tightrope. And I saw this um, television show um, last year. It was a public um, television show about an artist who decided to make her own tightrope. And she studied at a a shipbuilder's yard. And then it showed her learning to walk on it. And what she learned was that it wasn't like you ever keep perfect balance. But she learned that, that you're always out of balance, but being okay with being out of balance. That's how you walk on a tightrope. And that's how life is. It's like you can't expect everything to be going the, the way you think it should all the time. In fact, we're, we're, we're just doing this, like on a tightrope, and it's learning how, that keeping balance is actually being okay with being out of balance. And that learning is, if we're really able to learn we're willing to make so-called mistakes. In fact, the greatest learners are the ones who are willing to explore, yeah? And be willing to be a beginner over and over. And that leads us back to the wisdom of beginner's mind. Beginning again because actually each moment is new. So a a quality of wisdom that's so um, important is equanimity. And equanimity is defined as unconditional acceptance. Just like metta is unconditional love, meaning that it's not that I love myself if I look this way or if I feel this way or if I am a good yogi or bad. You know, it's not the conditional, but it's just loving ourselves just as we are and loving others just the way they are. Loving ourselves when we're the difficult person. You know, we're the difficult people for other people, too. We often forget that. <laughs> So unconditional acceptance is a similar thing where we're accepting life when we're sleepy, when we're restless, when there's love, when there's wisdom, when there's um, despair, when there's loneliness. So equanimity is what allows us to relate to each moment equally and to have that feeling of complete transparency meaning that there's no resistance to what's happening when equanimity is present. And that and resistance is when we go, oh no. Equanimity is when we go, oh okay, there's that opening willingness to be with how it is. And be careful of thinking that Equanimity will only arise if the attention is microscopic 
or awakening can only happen if the attention is microscopic. It's not what's meant by that. It's like that what's meant is that sometimes microscopic is skillful means and that there's a lot we can learn from that and that sometimes the open wide field of awareness as open as it can be is skillful means and both bring us to, to liberation both bring us to insight so I mean in a very general way you know when you're really spacing out that pulling it together a bit <laughs> you know focusing and becoming more precise is skillful means and other times, you know, when we're really, you know, I have a joke with a friend I was sharing with one group where, you know how if you look through binoculars the opposite way that you're supposed to, you know, you look through the wrong end, and it's kind of like you're looking, that's sort of like microscopic attention, yeah. And, you know, sometimes you're trying to do that, and you're trying so hard, and, you know, you're getting so tight, you're going to explode with aversion. You know, that's time to what? Open up. You know, it's in, it, really, if microscopic is hard for you, then just do a little bit of it. Just do maybe a few seconds of it. In fact, doing a few seconds of it can be just enough, and then you open up again. And you wait until the attention can actually be precise and microscopic. And if you do that, when I first was learning that style of practice, I used to be able only to do it a few seconds a day. And I kept hating myself for not being able to do it more. And I I realized pretty soon, this is going to be a really bummer three-month retreat if I don't, like, get this together. You know, I mean, it's just, it's a real highway down to doom and gloom. If, if you're not the microscopic type and you're trying to do it all day, you know? And so that's just, it's really learning, well, what can I do? And you check in and you really learn and see, okay, I can be with the beginning of the breath a bit, you know, and just be, that, be with that rising movement. And maybe that's all one can do. That's a lot microscopic precise types have a time, hard time being open. You know, there are different styles of people. You know, so the open type um, has a harder time learning to be more precise and microscopic. The more precise microscopic feels like it's too hard to be open. And it balances us to learn how to do the other a bit. But it doesn't mean that we force ourselves beyond the point where we can't do it. And what's so funny is that we actually can't force ourselves beyond the point. You know, you all know, like, we can't, and yet we hate ourselves and think we're failing if we can't. And that's not liberation. That's not the development of love or wisdom. That's just more self-hatred, more aversion. And it doesn't help anything. So really, take my word for it. It's like liberation, insight, love, you know, it, it comes from over and over being where we are. Just settling in and being where we are, being where we are. And in a way, that takes a lot of patience. Um, impatience is when we're really caught up in time. And you know when we're the most impatient? 
we actually have no time. And I know when I'm the most busy and when I start getting lost in being busy, I get the most stressed because I'm feeling like I don't have any time. And then (laughs) whatever I'm doing, I become less effective at because I just start getting so tight and I feel like I don't have time. The opposite of that is timelessness or patience. And the ironic thing is the more patient we are, the more time we have. And it's totally, isn't it weird? It's totally, how, how does this happen? You can go from being totally tight and caught up totally in time and having no time to remembering, oh, maybe I can step out of this. It's just, it's just again, remembering, okay, when we step out, I know the times in practice where I've really understood this. It's like, oh my, I have all the time in the world to do this practice. And that's the truth when you step out of time. And again, I think that being sometimes in Burma has helped me with this because I was sort of bred to be impatient. You know, it's like, um, especially even around being around suffering, especially any kind of oppression or injustice, you know, we all hear that compassion is the quivering of the heart in response to suffering my blood boils. My response to suffering is usually this boiling blood, you know, and and to shift from that to like that, you know, compassion requires me to step back and remember that patience and then to remember that it's a caring, a caring over and over, a caring whether it's inside me or outside of me. So when I've been in Burma, one of the things that really surprised me, I mean, it was kind of like, I couldn't believe it, is one time we took this little trip to Mandalay, and there's a Buddha there that's um, very respected in Burma, very revered, um, a statue. And when we went in there, it had been cold that day, and they, had a, they put a blanket. They put a blanket around the Buddha because it was cold. And I was like, what? You know? <laughs> Whoa, that's literal. You know, I was like, that's really, <laughs> never seen that before. You know, <laughs> you know, you don't see, you know, we don't see the putting a fan on the Buddha. You know? But that's what they do, you know. And, and then, okay, the thing that sent me totally over the edge they started brushing the Buddha's teeth. I was just like, whoa. You know, and I'm not exactly that type of devotional. I'm more of an aversion type anyway, you know, and that was just like, it just flipped me out, you know, and it took me a long time to just kind of start really trying to understand. And, you know, this is what's so important with culture. It's like, I could make some sort of, oh, that's too literal, but I really tried to understand what's going on here. And after I was in Burma for a while that first year, it was like, oh, they don't consider that the Buddha was in India, even. The Buddha was in Burma for them. Like, it's like there's no time and space. There has been no time that's elapsed, elapsed between when the Buddha died and now. So it feels like the Buddha just walked by. That's how palpable the aliveness of their relationship to the Buddha. The Buddha was human. He's still there. And so they reenact that giving, giving the yogis food is just like Sujata giving food. They reenact it. 
And there's a purity in that that's such a knockout that you get that feeling there of being held that we don't get as much, but certainly the cooks are doing it. It's just that we don't have it. We leave a retreat. When we leave a retreat, it's not like people put down a red carpet and say, oh, you must be sensitive right now. Why don't you take a week or two off you know, before you go back to work? You know, it's not you know, like that. It's there. It's like there's, it's normal for people to go into retreats and be yogis. And there's such respect for it. And here, you know, it's changing a little. If I'm on an airplane, you know, they might ask me what I do and I might dare say meditation, whereas 30 years ago, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say I taught meditation. Um, So there is a big change in that way. And, again, there's like a desert of metta, love, compassion in our culture. And so that that's what's hard. And, you know, that feeling of that um, humanness. You know, so any way that you can bring about that, it's like when I come into the hall, when I bow, um, bowing in, in the Buddhist tradition, that putting your hands together like this, the word for that is anjali. And one definition of that is a gesture of reverence. You know, that's a gesture of reverence. Now, you might not feel so comfortable with that. It could be that you put your hands in your pockets and you feel something for something. It might be the flowers. It might be an ancestral spirit. It might be a cat. It might be something. But the idea is, again, kind of to feel something to be reverent for. That that's the important quality. And I didn't feel it for a Buddha statue when I was practicing because, initially practicing, because I didn't have that relationship. I didn't have that aliveness that I learned in Burma. So I always would bow to the flowers. Um, But then, when Sayadaw Upandita came, and we, you know, we were encouraged to do the bows that you see us doing, which we go all the way down three times, it was like, whoa. You know, I wasn't sure. Well, how do I, I didn't know how I would relate to it. We weren't we didn't have to. But over time, there was just, again, just like with the metta phrases, I've learned to understand them on deeper and deeper levels. Um, one time I looked up the word Anjali in the Pali Dictionary, and the other definition for it is um, a full offering of your body and mind. And, you know, that, that's really dana. You know, what is dana? Ha, 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 ha. Well, we have this preciousness of birth and to offer. It's, the, it's just an offering of yourself to wisdom and compassion and touching your forehead to Mother Earth as a witness, just like Mother Earth witnessed the Buddha's enlightenment. It's just, it's a beautiful thing to do if you feel inclined. But you don't have to. What matters is, again, finding something that you can feel connected with in that way. So when our understanding of love and wisdom come together, there's a deeper and deeper purifying of our motivation. I think of um, 
One time I defined wisdom years ago as the gradual lowering of expectation. (laughs) You know, and you know, when you have a so-called good sitting or walking is when you just, you don't, you don't, you don't have any expectation, yeah. And then you might have a so-called good sitting and then it's like you get attached and you have that expectation and you hold on to it and hold on to it like a hot potato until finally you go, oh, you let go of the expectation. Ah, you're back here again. And that's why you start to understand, you know, that it's when we connect to ourselves for others, it happens when there's no agenda, when there's no expectation. And we can be touched very deeply by love, we can t- be touched very deeply by wisdom. They're both truth, and they're just different angles of the truth. And I'd like to end with just a very short quotation from the great Zen master Dogen. Although mountains seem to belong to the country, they really belong to those who love them. Although mountains seem to belong to the country, they really belong to those who love them. And I think of that as wisdom and love coming together to really know where we belong on a very deep level to the truth and to those that we love and to the love of the truth. And if we really love the truth, then we're willing to go through the purification again and again and again. Let's sit for a minute. May we deepen our understanding of love and wisdom and equally value them. Thank you for your practice. It's really wonderful to be here with you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.